everybody. Um, who all was here for the panel? Was anybody here whenever we spoke? Okay, so it's good to see some people again. And thanks again, Nick, for asking me to come out. I appreciate it. I love what you guys do here. This is an amazing, amazing thing. So it's my honor to be with you guys. Um, when he kind of told me the topic of the conversation, I was really excited because this actually ties in to one of the articles that I'm writing now, um, which is tying into what happens after you go to treatment. And so that ties in from this angle of how do we support those who are in recovery. Hello. I like to walk. Is this like mobile? Negative. You can well, actually, maybe I shouldn't walk. I'm in a boot. <laughs> I fell down the stairs. It was horrible. Okay. Um, so with that being said, in the recovery community, just to clarify as a quick reminder for those who were here and for those maybe who weren't, if somebody's going into the treatment experience, they may go through different routes, whether it's they go through detox at a hospital and then they go into inpatient treatment or residential or AKA rehab, or if they go to like an outpatient provider, or maybe they go through like a self-support group like AA or NA, or like through a church-based, faith-based one like Celebrate Recovery. They're gonna go through some kind of a treatment experience in general to help them move into their sobriety. So what we need to do is to help them, once we get out of the sobriety, or after they, when they actually start to maintain some sobriety, how do we support them after that? So the first thing I wanna kinda of start off with is, can I get by, by a show of hands, how many in the room knows somebody who's in recovery or has known somebody in recovery? Okay, so like, like everybody almost. So that's, that's good. That means there are some people that have made some positive changes in their lives, and I really like that a lot. So uh, what I'm planning on doing, and hopefully you guys join me in this, is I kind of want to make this a really informal question-answer discussion. I don't want to do a lot of just talking at you. So what I'd love to do is kind of hear from you guys, like, what are your thoughts on what you think people have done in the past? What do you think maybe are some areas? And I can help you with some simple tips and tricks that might be really helpful and beneficial. I currently have a loved one in my um, family that is in early recovery, and that's a really, really integral part. And so dealing with that on the personal side, as opposed to even just being a therapist, it's very different because you're intimately involved in maybe day-to-day -day life and whatnot. So. First things first, anybody have anything up front they want to kind of check in with me about the recovery stages and where they are when I talk about early recovery? No? Can you repeat the question? So their question was, does anybody needed to know about how to identify early recovery and what that looks like, just so we can kind of get a framework mm -hmm. for how to support people? Yes. Okay. So when early recovery happens, you think most people kind of coordinate that with typical AA or NA you know, milestones, 30-day chip, you're 60, you're 90, you get six months, you get a year in. That first year is the most important. So that's considered, truthfully, early recovery. Many people look at the first three months um, after you leave a treatment to see if that's when you can first start to gauge, okay, now we've been three months out, I've not been using, I've not been drinking, whichever it is, now we're gonna do this. So when it comes down to getting back into the home life, it is the absolute most important component. So the friends and loved ones and family members of those struggling, you guys are gonna be more important than their therapists were, more important than their doctors were, more important sometimes than like people would say even the medications that they took because you guys are gonna be there like in the trenches with them. People when they come into treatment with us, like in residential, I always manage their expectations up front and let them know. This first 30, 45 days, that's just, that's the easy part. That's just the beginning. It's when you get home. 
So when you get back into your everyday life, that's when the real work begins. Um, and that's where we tend to see a lot of high risk for relapse. So when we look at this early recovery period, we have to ask ourselves, are we being helpful? Are we being hurtful? So anybody have any ideas? What are things you think people may need or struggle with in that early recovery period? Validation, Validation. who's that, is that Shelby? No. Uh, So validation of like knowing what you're thinking, even though it may sound a little crazy, is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Validation is absolutely right. I mean, when you're the person who's coming home in the treatment experience, you don't want to feel like you're this odd person out. You're coming back into this, oh my goodness. You want people to normalize the experience for you. Hey, we still love you. There's nothing wrong with what you're going through. And unfortunately, that still is going on horribly with all the stigma. I was at a, a conference with nurses 600 of them in the state of Kansas two days ago on Friday and I was giving away books that my boss wrote about his recovery experience called Believable Hope and I've got them in the trunk if anybody wants a free copy. It's an amazing inspirational thing and I was giving away and this nurse turned her nose up and says, ew, I don't want to take one of those books. People are going to walk around and think I'm an addict and I kind of very professionally there and representing my company was kind of like, whew. Okay, how to do this one. So, I mean, these are nurses who are going to be working with people in the hospitals who are coming in intoxicated or needing help. Maybe that's the first place they go. So, I kind of had a little schooling and, you know, and with all love and great intentions. But that's, if that's a nurse professional that's thinking that, that's to me not that unrepresentative of what the general population is still going through. So, validating a person not just for where they are that day, but what they've gone through and that they're still loved and nobody dislikes them anymore. Oftentimes, don't forget when people are in addiction and they're just in that early stage, they're coming out of the fog, so to speak. Not like the P-H-O-G, but like the fog. And, <laughs> sorry, my husband went to KU. <laughs> so, whenever you do this, sorry, KU people. <laughs> yes, thank you, one. Ching. Um, when they come out of the fog, they oftentimes are faced with the reality of maybe all the things that they've done, maybe all the bridges they've burnt, maybe people that they've hurt, and that's a lot to deal with. Um, and so when you're that person and you're experiencing shame, and obviously it's so great to tie into, like for your thing in March, um, that guilt and shame, but more importantly the shame factor, you need that validation that you are loved regardless of what you've gone through and that you're there, that people are there for you. And also validating just the little baby steps that they're doing every single day. Hey, one more day that you didn't drink or you didn't use. Every baby step is amazing. Hey, you applied for a job today. That's awesome. Hey, you didn't call your, you didn't call your plug. You didn't call your dealer. You didn't call somebody that's from that old life. That is awesome. You deleted your Facebook and got a new one. Huge things to validate, guys. Yeah, question. What do you do? Because like, I've been, I'm like the addict. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, okay. And doesn't it feel like really hard to kind of validate or like mm -hmm. cheerlead on somebody who's hurt you that bad? Yeah. That's a great question. So the question was, what do you do whenever somebody is coming back who wasn't in their addiction, they're now in recovery, and they're faced with a family or a family support system who's actually angry because they've already had to deal with a lot, and how do you address that? And that honestly is very, very normal if you look at it. There's a lot of anger because 
maybe there's been things that have gone on. I don't know. Like where I know in like my family situations, there's been there's been theft, stealing, lying, manipulation, deceit, betrayal, things that as humans is very hard for us to wrap our mind around. Um, and then like obviously maybe lack of trust. Some people have maybe even had somebody and they've gone through treatment multiple times. And so at that point, sometimes the families even are so angry that they've checked out and like, I don't even know if this is gonna work anymore, whatever, you, maybe this will work, I don't know. And they're angry and they're yelling. I actually have a friend um, and when this was happening, I was getting her into treatment. Her family was so angry with her that she was in the ICU again. I understand that, it's upsetting. You don't wanna ever see somebody you love or care about being in that state. But as, from a therapeutic standpoint, when we look at anger as an emotion, we consider it a secondary emotion. So what's behind that anger? Fear. Is it fear? Are they, were they just so afraid that you were gonna get hurt or die or something terrible? Because that's the most fear thing you can have in the rock bottom is death. So fear is usually behind that anger. A lot of times that anger has nothing to do with the person in recovery, it has to do with themselves. Maybe they feel responsibility that they're mad at themselves, that they didn't do something that they maybe they felt like they should. And that's part of the family's role. They have to learn how to reset as a whole family system. Because in family systems, you think about it like a mobile, like in a, a crib, you know, like the little cute doo-doo-doo. It's all balanced perfectly. What happens when you take off one of those pieces? It all goes out of whack. Eventually, it will stabilize to its new norm. Because remember, we always seek to homeostasis right here. But it's gonna be a change. And so the family's used to operating in that dysfunctional role. So they're angry, even partially, just because of the whole change. It's a big shakeup. They don't know what to do. So what I suggest often for my families when they're going through this is to work on themselves first and foremost because they need to figure out what about this is making them so angry. And like I said, oftentimes, it has nothing to do with the person. It's all about them. And it's awful, often different depending on what the relationship is. Is it a, a spouse? Is it a dyad of a husband and a wife possibly? Or, or a husband and a husband, a husband and a wife and a wife? Whatever it is. Whatever that couple dyad is, if one of them is the partner who uses or, or drinks and they have to come back, that's a relationship. Then if it's a parent-to-child relationship, that's a different system that it's got to work with. If it's a close extended family member or friend, everybody's got a little bit in their relationship that's going to be different. So I'd also recommend them kind of figuring out what is it about this relationship that needs to be repaired. Um, I think the family members have too high of expectations to begin with. They ultimately assume that treatment's going to fix somebody like, like that, and it's not. That person didn't lose their job, their family, their career, spend money, steal money, go to jail in one day, even probably 20 days. And it's not gonna be 20 days for them to come back to where they think they should be. So I try to really work with family and loved ones about managing expectations to be realistic. Because it's not gonna be very supportive if somebody comes back and is trying as hard as they possibly can and literally maybe what their best is, if it's not matching what their family or loved one thinks that it should be, you're never gonna have true support because they're always gonna feel like they are failing them because they're not managing their expectations to be realistic. Um, so that's a really great question about the anger. Also, I think truthfully, talking about it's important. Families 
they built up a lot of resentment over the years or the time or months or whatever it is and maybe they truly need to talk about it whether it's with the person or in their own therapy talking communication is essential very frank honest discussions is good um, when you look at his, um, patterns in the addiction family addictive family there's a tendency to hide things there's like we we, we we kind of act like it's not as big of a deal we minimize we hide oh yeah my husband's at home and they're sick and maybe they're intoxicated etc so whenever you come out of it and the person's in recovery they need to talk about it they want to share what's going on what's on their minds and maybe the family or loved ones aren't quite ready and they feel uncomfortable and that's part of the problem is that you need to be fully supportive by actually communicating honestly and they may not be easy talks and i could promise you they're probably not going to be because there's been a lot of really raw emotions that have been hit on both sides um, so i would say that's probably the next thing to do to address that anger make them talk make them identify what's really beneath their anger i would bet it's not really that person it's something with themselves yeah yes what kind of groups can you find for the caregivers i mean because i haven't had any success with finding anyone that has groups for caregivers so if you hear stories then you'll know if your expectations are unrealistic mm -hmm, or not. Mm -hmm. So the question was how do you find groups to support the caregivers of people and that there's been some struggles. Um, I know I personally know of a, of a pretty decent amount of support groups around the metro that I could maybe talk about. I know First Call has a free group called How to Cope um, and I can get you their information. There's also a free group in Overland Park and it's um, a couple and they lead the group they're in recovery so I can get you that a lot of them you're right though it's not just everywhere the hardest part truthfully is for the family members because everybody in the world wants to try to get the person into treatment who maybe needs help but the family members are the ones who are like great they got help now what for me so on my end when I get a family into treatment the first thing I do is talk to the family and I say now it's your turn you can't just expect this person to go into treatment and then come back. You have to do your own work too. That way we guys both come back together. So it depends on what their financial status is. Some people want to go do private practice like an individual therapist. Some people want to do group counseling, like you said, where it's like a support network where you can see others' experiences. And I personally, I'd highly recommend a family support group because I think that's going to normalize and really say more validate all the experiences you've gone through and then you can see how everybody else is going through them. And they're going to have different tips from what they've already experienced. And remember too, some things may differ depending on who it is, what substance they're abusing, and what their recovery is gonna look like. But I think if I had to put a suggestion out, that would be mine is to go to a family support group first, and there are some free ones. But also, individual therapy is really helpful if you maybe have your own issues of codependency, et cetera, that you need to work on. Because part of the biggest component outside of your own work is learning what those things are that you need to work on. And if you don't know what they are, how are you gonna fix them and how are you gonna address them? Um, I don't like the word fix, maybe maybe manage is a better way of putting it. Because I don't know if we can truly resolve anything. Yes? Can you speak to codependency? Can we speak to codependency for a moment? Yes. So there's a really great book called Codependent No More. I would highly suggest reading it if you haven't. This is really important, not just for family members, but oftentimes people who are in addiction themselves, if they go through this, you can find out they're actually a codependent personality. So people with codependency, there's a typical list of traits that maybe you experience. Whenever we do interventions, for example, 
we typically look to find out who's the codependent in the family system. Another word that's often utilized with that is in lieu of is the enabler. So we think of enabling behaviors. You may not think, oh, I'm enabling, oh, I'm being codependent, but perhaps you are. People who are struggling with being codependent with their behaviors, they're not putting down strong boundaries um, with their loved ones. Um, for example, there's a person and they kept using and the rule was you can't come in this house if you're under the influence because I don't want you to be around the children. But instead of setting that boundary and abiding by it, they kept letting the person come in under the influence. So they're not even enforcing their own boundaries. That's an example of a small boundary. Um, oftentimes they enable in other ways. So they're like, oh my goodness, I don't have anything to eat. I'm really hungry. Like parent to child, for example. Okay, I'll give you some money, but just this money. If you promise you're gonna go spend it on this. So you give them $100, then you turn out that $100 didn't go to that. I know one personal example is somebody asked for a cell phone. Sounds like a legitimate thing. I need a cell phone. That way I can contact you. I can call for jobs. I can try to get some employment. But instead what happened to the cell phone is it got sold for drug money instead. So unfortunately, sometimes we do things with the best of intentions in our heart and they end up just enabling that person to continue on in their pursuit of their lifestyle. So that's part of the codependency. Oftentimes codependency, if you think of the word dependent, codependent, you need one another. You don't know how you're going to do it without the other person because your, your system is so enmeshed. And instead of having two separate people who are connected, you're like this. So when now one person's gone, doesn't know how to operate. I had a person who went to Vegas and their spouse couldn't deal with them being gone. Three days later, they flew out to Vegas and said, you coming home from there, I'm going to divorce you. So that person left treatment and they sabotaged it because they couldn't live without that other person. Typically, um, codependent people struggle with self-esteem and feelings of responsibility. That's probably the biggest one is instead of putting responsibility where responsibility is due, people who struggle with codependency, they take on the role of responsibility and blame. It's my fault that my spouse, my child, my friend, whatever, is using or abusing, when it's not. We cannot control it, cure it, and we didn't cause it, right? So this is, their, this is like their responsibility. All we can do is to be a support system, but we can't control their use. We can't control what they do or don't do. We don't take that responsibility, we don't own it. They have to have their own responsibility, and that's really important, because whenever we let them have their own responsibility, it ends up giving them strength and growth. They can take on their own role and become stronger and be able to go out there and face it and not feel like somebody's, they're only making it because somebody's supporting them from underneath. We want to be there like in cheerleading. You have spotters in case you fall. That's kind of what our role is. Our role is not to sit there and hold their hands the whole time. How are they going to do a stunt? It's not going to happen. So, sorry, cheerleader thing. Um, um, what else? I have some questions. I saw some of their hands up earlier. Yes? Uh, yeah, so one of the things that I think about with addiction is I know that once you're in recovery and the actual addiction itself is gone, um, things kind of shift because then all the underlying issues mm -hmm. uh, start coming up, which is healthy, mm -hmm. but I imagine it can create uh, tension or confusion with those you're trying to support mm -hmm. people who are in recovery. So I just wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so the question was kind of related to whenever people are in recovery and they've actually maintained some period of sobriety, maybe some underlying issues have started to come up and how does that impact the people who are trying to support them. Now, as a therapist, I 100% believe that addiction is not 
without some other co-occurring condition, whether it's anxiety, depression, trauma, grief, loss, whatever, something is there that is going on. And oftentimes people are using their addiction as a way of coping with it. And that's a great numbing skill. It's a maladaptive coping skill, but it works for them. And then when you take that away for extended periods of time, that is gonna show. Um, in treatment world, it's interesting because people like to see people not used for six months and then that way they can see, was this a side effect of their substance abuse? Or is this, like you said, the underlying concerns? So depending on what you find underneath, oftentimes I've had um, loved ones who are really surprised of what they found and not sure what to do. I have um, a personal connection and um, meth was their drug of choice. And so after the meth had been out of the system and it had been, I don't know, four months, we're still seeing a lot of symptoms of paranoia um, fear, psychosis a little bit. So the family's fear is, oh my goodness, is there schizophrenia maybe? And I didn't realize that that was there. So that's a whole nother ball game. How do you deal with that? So I would say first things first, see if it's just um, a continued um, side effect of the substance abuse. So give it time, give it a good amount of time so you can see that there's not one causing the other. But after that, when it was revealed, depression, Oftentimes you're gonna see co-occurring disorders, depression, anxiety, those typical ones go along with the drugs of choice. So what would you guess um, alcohol's typical mental health co-occurring condition is? Depression, exactly. Um, so you have to think about that. So when you see depression, you may not have even realized that your loved one was suffering from depression. So my first suggestion is obviously talk about it and seek help, but also, that's gonna mean there's probably gonna be some changes that you weren't prepared for. You maybe thought, oh, I've got the battle fought. Yes, the addiction is in, you know, we're, so, we're sober now. And then you didn't realize now you're living with somebody who's got some mental health needs. So that's a whole nother ball of wax. All I can say is first, the, the first things first to the family members, hang in there, you're doing great. It's just one more fight in the battle, you know? The war is not over, it's a never ending journey. Um, I would say that when it comes to the mental health condition, unless you're an expert in that field, I would definitely seek out whatever support system you need. You know, NAMI's got wonderful, wonderful support, free resources, um, SAMHSA, um, S-A-M-H-S-A, it's a government website, you can go on there, they've got free publications, they've got family education videos and books, um, but also seeking out people who have been through it themselves, peer support, like you mentioned, group support, it's fabulous. Um, seeking out um, spiritual care, whether it's pastoral staff, somebody you trust in that realm, therapy, all those different support systems are gonna be necessary. And I think the hardest part's gonna be for the person experiencing it, because maybe they didn't even realize that they were struggling with anxiety. Um, because they never really understood, oh wow, now that's gone, I'm, I mean, they're dealing with it themselves. So it's gonna be both of you guys going through it together. I don't know if I answered your question, I think I just talked for a whole long time. You're fine. You spoke to this, um, but you talked about codependency. Mm -hmm. um, what about, I've seen a lot of uh, the addict as the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. So when the addict becomes clean or stops drinking, um, they kind of lose that scapegoat mm -hmm. Yeah, so talking about the scapegoat role in the family system, and once they move into recovery, what happens to that role? You're right, because the family, just remember, they've been so used to doing this for a very long time, and now when that person's removed, they don't know what to do oftentimes, which is why you still see a lot of people continue to do that. 
with the same you, 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 and then it's kind of like, oh, hey, actually that's not the case. So you will see that often, and that's I see that a lot with families who maybe not sought any kind of treatment or support for themselves. I would say that what I've really seen is I've been trying to empower the person in recovery to identify, hey, this is not going on anymore. We need to turn around and look in the mirror. But whenever I do see that, it's because they're having a hard time adjusting. I mean, that's been their family system. That's been all they've known for a really long time. And just as much as it took the person to get into recovery a long journey, it's going to take the family a long journey too. I, I, I can't say it's going to be easy. I think, like I said before, after treatment's the hardest part, and it's going to take a really, really long time. Um, but that family system will fight it because that's what's normal to them. That makes sense. You're challenging everything you knew to change it. So it's going to take somebody as a champion in that family system to really advocate for that movement. Otherwise, that change is going to be really stunted, and they're going to try to fight against it. I've often, like I said, really seen the person in recovery be that person who's really tried to move the system. And that's what I would advocate for because oftentimes, like you said, you've got their family systems using them as a scapegoat. But what it usually does is pretend there's a parental dyad, the mom and dad, and maybe there's a child. And it can be an adult. I see adult children, like 20s, whatever. And once that person's in recovery, now the parents realize that they've got a lot of marital discord and they didn't realize that beforehand. Now they don't have a third person to try to distract all that marital conflict of towards. So then they have to look in the mirror themselves. So it's a real, it's not about one person recovery. It's a family recovery. It's a life. I mean, whatever's involved in your family, friends, neighbors, like my family's huge. My extended family's huge. Who I count as part of my family are actually friends. So it's a big network of people. So now that's great about the codependency though. Yes. Okay, so the question was, how do you deal with the fear factor? Like even though somebody's gone through recovery, what do you do with the fear that maybe they're going to use? A fear of relapse, possibly the fear of something being in the house. Um, that's a very real fear, and that actually goes through probably about everybody. And I would first normalize that that's normal. <laughs> Everybody's going to experience that. Secondly, I would say at the end of the day, it's going to come down to self-care, setting boundaries, and identifying what's your responsibility and what's not. Um, the fear is going to produce so much anxiety. You're going to have elevated cortisol levels. You're going to have to do a lot of self-care. I'm not sure. I, I brought some stress balls just in case anybody wants them. I'll throw, I'll throw them at you in a minute. Do a lot of self-care because you're going to move into like, um, a compassion fatigue and burnout as a caretaker or a loved one of somebody in recovery if you don't do a lot of self-care. I highly suggest things that are going to be your own internal self-care, whether it's meditation, prayer, devotions, a bath, something that's some kind of a sensory involvement, mindfulness, breathing, etc. because you need to take care of you. When it comes to the family fear, bring that up. Part of that honest discussion is, hey, I'm afraid. What you're really talking about, though, is trust. There's a trust that's been gone. And you can't, just because somebody graduates from treatment, that doesn't mean trust is there. And it's not supposed to be. 
We don't just get trust back. Unfortunately, I've had people who've worked so hard in their recovery path and they come back and in their soul, it makes sense. Well, why can't they trust me? I, I did all this hard work, I know it. But it's hard for them to understand that what the family side went through, that they went through this emotional roller coaster up and down and had like a lot of internal pain that maybe they hid from that person. So they might not they know the extent. So communicating, hey, I'm afraid about this and this and this. I've had families on both sides who have together made a plan where, hey, I, in order to rebuild trust, would it be okay if we set a plan in place? Some people go around and they do do sweeps. Some people do have breathalyzers or UAs. That's up to the individual family that I've seen. They do that as they've established trust. But sooner or later, you have to remember that if that person really wanted to use drink, they can do that anywhere, whether it's at the house or not. Well, and then also, like, part, like as somebody who struggled with the addiction, it's like I'm paranoid walking around my family because I think that they're paranoid, and I'm like, so it's like there's just this awkward elephant in the room. The awkward elephant in the room. I'm paranoid with what they're thinking. And they think I'm using, I'm afraid they think I'm using. That's why I think you're missing that. You're not, you guys got to address that elephant in the room. Hey, just so you know, I didn't use today. (laughs) Go check if you don't, if you don't believe me, it's cool. I don't mind really. And you, and you will, and you'll have to just keep doing that. And on your side, you have to also eventually, you will have to slowly give trust. You you have to, otherwise, how is it going to work? Especially if somebody's living in the same roof. If you truly don't, then maybe it has to start out differently. I've had families where maybe the loved one has to stay somewhere else until they've been 30 days where they've shown this or that, and then they're slowly able to move into a guest bedroom and then into their bedroom or whatever the case may be. I've seen lots of different things. And that's really going to vary depending upon the individuals because you may have had a different experience, how, how severe the trust was broken, and what, how much betrayal. I mean, I had a family who stole $68,000 from the person. I mean... There's a lot of anger there, you know? So I would say that you're not within your normal limits to be able to kind of have that fear. It's not uncommon for somebody to be like, oh my gosh, what are they thinking? I'm afraid they're thinking this. But the whole point is no one should be walking on tiptoes. Nobody. There's not be any, was that, what's that expression? Eggshells? Thank you. I'm tiptoes, my foot, I'm all about this foot. Yeah, so you shouldn't be walking on eggshells thinking, oh my gosh, are they thinking about this? And you shouldn't be thinking, oh my gosh, are they using? It goes back in the same family dynamic. Yeah, that's the whole point, though. When you're so afraid and you're so afraid, then it's staying in here. And just like I said, in the system families, they're not talking about it. It's got to be, that's what I said, it's going to be a lot of blunt, honest communication. And if both parties aren't willing to do that, they're not going to have a very successful outcome. Okay, so we've got time for about one more question. And then I'm going to leave you guys with a couple of quick things, okay? And then come over and get some stress balls. Anybody else got some questions? Yes. I've been having a problem getting my son into treatment, even though I'm the guardian. I had a, a police sergeant explain to me that because of the way the Supreme Court has uh, taken some of the legs out from under guardianship, I can't make my son go get treatment. Hmm. Well, I might have to sidebar you with that one because that's a long conversation about guardianship. It's a real special thing. Just so you're aware, guardianship, if you have guardianship, technically you have the legal right to sign somebody in for that. So let's sidebar afterwards for that part. Um, Anything else before I kind of move on to the end? Just some quick rapid-fire things. Okay, so what I would say is just to recap everything, 
boundaries are important on both sides in the recovery. Make sure you set boundaries with what you're comfortable with. If somebody maybe is moving back into your house, okay, fine, 30 days, you have to have a job or you're gonna pay this rent or whatever it is, something that's gonna show some investment on their half. On the other side, my, hey, my expectation is if you have a feeling about this, you're gonna to come to me and we're gonna talk about this. Because remember, you're creating a new family system that the goal is to be a healthy family system. So you're gonna to try to do that. Make sure you engage in your self-care. Don't let stress get to you. On either side, stress is gonna do what? Yeah, absolutely. I would say this though, and I hate to bring it up, but I think I should. Um, <laughs> as a loved one, look out for relapse prevention. So I would say as a family, you should make your own relapse prevention plan. That means that a person who's in recovery would say, hey, when I'm using, or if I'm drinking, this is what I do. This is what you should be looking out for. And that family members, they should literally write that down. Like, write that down. And then, if you ever do start to observe any of those symptoms, then you call them out on it. Hey, I'm noticing you've been getting really irritable. I notice you're not sleeping anymore. I notice you've been doing X, Y, Z. What's going on? Are you at risk for relapse? And you should have a plan in place. Because if you don't, that's the other elephant in the room. People want to say, hey, let's not ever talk about that relapse might happen, but it may. But the goal is to be proactive and try to prevent it. And you can't do that unless both people are working together. So have a good relapse prevention plan in place. Um, manage your stress, talk, honest communication. And remember that recovery is not just one thing. It's a whole body experience, body, mind, soul. The biggest two things that I see people relapse around is because they don't have good sober connections with friends and family and whatever because remember half the time you have to give up their whole friend network can you imagine giving up every friend you ever knew on your facebook your phones whatever you have to help them understand that try to gain that and the second thing is healthy activities you guys got to remember you need to do things whether it's going bowling going to do parks going whenever i worked at drug court we literally took all the drug court participants camping because none of them had ever done anything like that sober. And that's huge. Just to actually have somebody go through the motions with them and say, I can do this. I can go on a float trip and not drink. I'm just saying. I can, you know, go over here and have a picnic at Loose Park. Take them on lots of sober activities to show them that life is super fun and awesome and can be in recovery. But if you don't have people that support you, friends, loved ones, and those activities, life's not gonna be worth it. So. Make sure to incorporate that, the body, mind, the spirit, okay? And that's what I got. So thank you guys, I appreciate it.